This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 241st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is a living legend of music and film who... Over the course of a career spanning some 75 years, has worked as a musician, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, record producer, film composer, record label executive, film producer, and humanitarian, closely collaborating with an incredible array of the most important artists of his time, including Ray Charles, Clark Terry, Lionel Hampton, Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Frank Sinatra, Leslie Gore, Cindy Lamette, Michael Jackson, Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey, and Will Smith. Along the way, he also became one of only 21 EGOTs, meaning a winner of at least one Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony, if you count not only competitive awards like his Emmy, Tony, and 27 Grammys, which are tied with Alison Krauss for the most among people still living and second most overall, and non-competitive awards like the special Oscar, the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award, that the Film Academy presented him in 1995 to go along with two special Grammys, 1989's Trustees Award, and 1992's Legend Award. He's also a 2013 inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a recipient of its Lifetime Achievement Award. His friends call him Q, but the world knows him as the incomparable Quincy Jones. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, the 85-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, including how he was shaped by his dark childhood, how he first began playing music professionally while he was still in his teens, what it was like being black in Hollywood and abroad as he was building his career, how he reinvented himself in so many different areas of the entertainment industry over the years, and what motivated him later in his career to champion up-and-coming talent like Jackson, Winfrey, and Smith, what he thinks of the state of music and America today, and what he makes of Quincy, the acclaimed new documentary feature about his life and career. But first, I was joined at the Four Seasons by Al Hicks and Rashida Jones, the co-directors of the aforementioned documentary Quincy, which had its world premiere on September 9th at the Toronto International Film Festival, receiving a huge standing ovation, which has since had its American premieres in New York and L.A., garnering the same response, and which debuted on Netflix last Friday. Al and Rashida, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you for having you. us. Jeez. So, Al, let's start with you, if we can. I don't know if people caught it in that one word there, but they'll know from your accent, you are Australian. What brought you to America and specifically to filmmaking? Yeah, I'm from Australia. I'm from a town called Wollongong, south of Sydney, about an hour and a half south of Sydney. And I grew up as a drummer or musician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was really interested in jazz and moved to New York when I was 18 to pursue jazz and study music. You got a scholarship to go there, right? Yes. Yeah, I got a scholarship to go to a university called William Patterson University just outside of New York City when I was 18. And yeah, I I went on and ended up playing drums in the band of the great Clark Terry, the the trumpet player. 
who had also been a teacher many years earlier of Quincy Jones. Right? Yeah, Quincy Jones and Miles Davis. Anyways, I threw some crazy circumstances, ended up meeting him and becoming friends and, and eventually joining his band and played with him for five or six years. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I felt this whole thing that maybe we should be filming mm-hmm. Clark because he's one of the last living legends from that time and nobody had done anything. So I switched gears and started making a film about him. And Keep On Keeping On came out in 2014, won the Audience Award and the Best New Documentary Director Award at the 2014 Tribeca Film Festival. And it was in the course of making that that I think you first crossed paths with Quincy Jones. And I guess we have Snoop Dogg's broken ankle to thank for for really. Can you explain (laughs) how this movie might not be happening? Quincy might not be happening without Snoop Dogg. (laughs) Well, in Keep On Keeping On, there was a moment where Quincy literally walks into the film and he was coming down to Arkansas to record with Clark Terry, who was going to sing his trademark mumbles, he calls it, and Snoop Dogg was going to rap with him. So Quincy was coming down to produce that session and to also hang out with Mm -hmm. his teacher. And Snoop Dogg was playing basketball with his son in the driveway before going to the airport and sprained his ankle and didn't come. And so it was just kind of fate that Quincy was already on the flight and just spent the day hanging out with Clark and met Clark's student, who's a blind piano player, Justin Coughlin. And then Quincy took a liking to Justin's playing and they became friends and he eventually signed Justin who was also the, the other main character in that mm-hmm. in Keep On Keeping On. And Quincy then came on as an executive producer right, yep. of Keep On, and mm-hmm. you guys, that was the beginning of that. Rashida, people know you best as an actress, obviously. Was directing something that you've always wanted to do more of, or was it specifically because you wanted to help tell your father's story that you are now directing this film? Well, directing's certainly been something I've been interested in, and I've directed a couple episodes of my show and an episode of a doc series that I created with two other women, Hot Girls Wanted Turned On, but I had never done anything feature length. And I think it probably took something as personal as this to help me take this scary jump (laughs) to this. So yeah, I mean, it was sort of both. And I know that, you know, your father has said that, you know, through coming to know Al over the course of the last few years, he has great affection and trust for him, but also I wonder, he, he probably takes the confidence that somebody has in a child to move forward with something like this, right? Do you think, you know, how important was it to him that you would also be anchoring this story and wanted him to do it? Well, when I first mentioned to him that I wanted to make a documentary, he was very excited. I think there's like, you know, nice energy. First, you're proud of your kid. And then also, my dad is a, he's a true purist extrovert. I mean, he really <laughs> is the definition of that world. He, he gets energy from other people. And I think, you know, having a crew around him and having people you trust, yes, very important, but having a crew around him and, and being able to kind of, you know, charm the camera <laughs> while he charms other people, letting people into his life, like that is something that's kind of a core value for him as a, as a human being. So it definitely helped mm-hmm. in terms of us having access and also telling a story that wasn't always, you know, the positive best representation of him at at any given time. I think, you know, it it took a kind of a special team to do that. Well, and because he's had such a jam-packed long life with so many different chapters, 
was there ever any consideration to doing what has become increasingly a popular thing to do, docu-series, something like what we saw with an O.J. Mayor America or any of the, you know, it's just there's tons of them now. Or was it always important to you guys to do it as a feature-length documentary? I mean, the truth is there's absolutely enough footage to do many, many seasons of a docuseries. <laughs> He's got a big old life, and, you know, luckily we had access to so much archival material. But I think from the very beginning it was important to tell the story as a feature film because I think that's the kind of time frame that people can absorb. And then also there's so much other richness to his life that if it's just a jumping-off point. So yeah. you start with the movie, and then you can go dig a little deeper if you want. But it, but it's always been important to me to make the, the film version. And it's kind of amazing. I looked, there had, I think, been one other documentary, Listen Up, or, or something, but nobody's really... I think it was so daunting to other people to try to tell his story that they just really haven't done it. It's like Clark in the sense that nobody's really told his story mm -hmm. on film before. Well, I think part of it is that my dad... He's so accomplished, so you're so busy listing his accomplishments that it's really hard to ever get the time to talk about his personal life and his emotional life. Right. But for us, there is a synergy between his emotional life and his success. It's not like they're two different things. It's not like he presents one way and then he's another way at home. Right. The way that he connects with people, the way that he creates these bonds and friendships in the course of two hours of meeting someone or whatever it is, it's the same energy and talent that he has pulling out the greatest things from the artist that he works with, you know, and, and his workaholism and being out in the world. All those passions are connected, and that was, like, you know, an important part of the storytelling. Well, and that's why I think the structure of the film is so effective that, you know, if you just tried to do a linear chronological thing, I think people would just be overwhelmed and not necessarily enlightened because you, he is still doing it, obviously. And so the fact that you guys chose to cut back and forth between the past at different points and his life since you started filming in 2015. I think that was pretty interesting. When did you arrive at that idea, Al? Well, it was part of the, the, some of the first discussions that we had about before we even knew what kind of archival was out there mm -hmm. was that we did want a relationship between the present and the past and to be able to focus on his personality and to draw that out and to see moments that we can fall backwards in time that are motivated by the present and once we dived into the archival footage, it was really evident that this is something we could do and really go for it. Can you just fill people in on how much archival footage we're talking about yeah. as well as how much new footage? Yeah, so it was it's 800 hours of Verite footage of like current day footage which on Keep On Keeping On, we shot 450 hours and that mm -hmm. was a huge mm -hmm. undertaking, but we close to doubled it on this one. And then there's, we found 2,000 hours of archival footage to, to draw from. And where was that? Well, <laughs> he, he had this archive in his, kind of in the basement of his home, mm -hmm. and we worked in there for about six months to go through the whole thing, scanning all the photos and, and lots of VHS tapes and transferring everything. And we finally finished that and went and talked to Quincy and said, hey, man, we finished through the archive. And he's like, oh, that's beautiful, but you should see the vault. And we're just <laughs> like, oh, my God. What was in there? The vault The vault is really where, you know, he... The vault was serious. Yeah. yeah. A it's, lot more. <laughs> it's, it's in freezing temperatures. You have to wear all your 
snowboarding gear. <laughs> oh my god! Did and you know this existed, Rashida? I, mean, I knew. Th- I knew that there was probably some stuff that hadn't been attended to for a while, but I, I don't think I had any clue. Especially because through the lens of wanting things to right. share with the world, it's completely different, right. you know, because you're getting into all these things that had never been seen before, and footage from so long ago, like raw tapes from specials that aired in different countries, like just incredible incredible stuff so it sounds like a lot of this was new to you too i mean what were the most eye-opening discoveries that you came across whether or not they made it into the film i just love honestly i love seeing all the stuff of him young because Mm -hmm. you know i appeared as a child halfway through my dad's life Mm -hmm. and he had lived this really big life Mm -hmm. before he ever got to me i'm the sixth of of seven kids so to see footage of him playing in Lionel Hampton's band is amazing mm-hmm. at 18. To see him working on scores in the 60s is incredible because I've never seen that in life. I've yeah. never seen that in motion. So. so who was capturing all this footage? I mean, to me, it was more a product of the home video camera age that most of us have VHSs and stuff at home. But like, we're talking stuff from the 50s, the 60s. Yeah, it's, it's, from, it's from all over the place, yeah. you know. And, and there's things in there that... There's the Super 8 footage mm-hmm. that we found that's family home footage. Mm-hmm. Where my mom had a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there was Peggy's archive as well. Yeah. That was a, another <laughs> another layer. <laughs> but then there's, there's stuff that has never seen the light of day. Like there's some Ray Charles interviews and some Frank Sinatra interviews mm-hmm. that when we first showed the movie to Quincy, these are things he's never heard before. And these are his friends, mm-hmm. and they're long since gone, and they're speaking about him, wow. almost to him. Yeah. And that was very emotional for Quincy, you know, the first time that he saw it. Mm-hmm. And that was just sitting in a vault. Would you guys sort of, since a lot of this research had to happen in his home in Bel Air, are you guys, you know, letting him know when you make various discoveries, or was it all just sort of sprung on him at the end? He sort of wanted it that way. He he said, just let me know when you're done. When it's over, Which yeah. is the best news you can yeah. ever hear from a subject. Yeah. <laughs> because oh, yeah. There's nothing worse than a, a micromanaging <laughs> right, right, subject. Right. <laughs> Which, when it's family, families micromanage each exactly. other all the time. <laughs> so speaking of that aspect of things, as his daughter, what for you, Rashida, was the hardest thing to not be able to put in there to share with the world? And what was the hardest thing to have to put in there to share with the world? Well, I think probably the hardest thing not to put in is just all the stuff that didn't make it in because Mm -hmm. his story is so big, you know, and we had to make pretty tough decisions about how to edit this particular story. There's so many other stories to be told. Mm -hmm. And then I would say the hardest thing to put in was the thing that I think we had to put in, which was footage of him not doing well, Mm -hmm. you know, in the hospital, Mm -hmm. having health stuff because I am protective of him, but I, I also know that you can't tell a real story unless you have all the information in there. And of course, like there's, you know, you make these editorial decisions about what kind of story to tell, but the story of his life is whether or not he can see it every day, he pushes himself to the edge Mm -hmm. and then he kind of like sobers up, you know, sometimes literally, sometimes (laughs) just psychologically. And then he pushes on the next decade and does a bunch of work. And then he has the same pattern again. And because he's incredibly strong on every level he's managed to do that so many more times than should even be real you know but i wanted to show the world that and i wanted to show him that Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of that stuff that he wasn't even conscious for he couldn't even see so you know it's important to to tell the whole story yeah and al in the course of doing this was there something that you came to 
learn or better appreciate about Quincy that you didn't know before? I mean, I, you're obviously much more knowledgeable about music and, and I'm sure about Quincy than your average guy on the street, but still to get this deep into it, what were the biggest revelations to you? Oh man. Well, it's Quincy Jones, <laughs> you know, so you find out something new every day, whether you're actually filming with him or you're in the archive. So he's constantly telling stories. And if you film him for a full day, it all makes sense. But if, if the people that are just getting in front of him, he's in the middle of talking through a story and that person might leave and the next right. person comes and he continues it. And it's you, like jazz. Yeah, he's <laughs> totally improvising. But but to be recording that throughout the day, you can see that like there is just such a rich history there, and he just wants to share it. Mm-hmm. So as far as the archive is concerned, there's things like just finding out that he had the first music that was ever played on the moon. Mm-hmm. Fly me to the moon. Fly me to the moon <laughs> appropriately. Yeah, <laughs> finding out that that he was in the room, standing next to the piano with John Coltrane when. Miles Davis recorded Kinda Blue mm-hmm. and Quincy's like 23 years old. He's just there. But not just there as like a, a young kid. He's a major mm-hmm. arranger in the city. He's mm-hmm. a very at the top. To see that he could climb this ladder, this creative ladder in different aspects of music and then further into production and filmmaking, he became a trumpet player. His first thing is he wanted to play the trumpet. He he rose up in that and then he decided he wanted to be an arranger and he rose up to the top of that. Then he decided he wanted to write for strings. He rose up to the top in that. Film scores. You know, it just keeps... And this is all before Michael Jackson. Right. <laughs> you know, so... I don't know, I could talk for hours about the surprises you, you find out about a person like that. Definitely. I thought one of the most interesting creative decisions you guys made was to not do what we see in most documentaries about you know, people with such rich lives, and that is to not show any talking head interviews. We don't see anybody, whether it's the subject or people who knew him, going on and giving us exposition. I'm sure it didn't make your lives easier, so why did you choose to do that? I think it was an important stylistic choice we agreed upon really early in the process because this is an intimate movie, and we wanted it to feel first person, and the way to do that is to not make it feel academic, mm-hmm. and that's what happens when I watch movies of Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I like it, yeah. but for this, you know, we wanted it to stay visceral. We wanted it to stay emotional. We wanted it to stay intimate, and we had such great audio from, you know, not just my dad, but all the people in his life surrounding his life, so we thought if we can just create enough visuals to support the audio that you, you could stay in a zone easier. And I think was... They're a model for this in terms of other docs that you wanted to emulate? Well, there's, there is some films that have done that. Senna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Amy. Amy. Yeah. Amy. yeah. He's such a wonderful filmmaker. Carpedia, yeah. yeah. And it's a more complicated way to go about it too. The construction becomes more complicated. But what we were hoping to do is that in each era to find as much audio from Quincy from that period so that it wasn't – it's not a retrospective right. story. As we get into the 60s, he's – in the 60s and he's talking about that time as we get into the 70s he's talking about that time right. while it's happening so we try to do that as much as possible yeah and not many people have had their lives documented enough to do that where yeah. you could go so that's pretty <laughs> interesting i guess lastly what was it like for you guys to show the film finally after all these years of working on it to him and what was his reaction well, we were definitely nervous. Yeah. I mean, of course, yeah. you know, it's it's a long time coming. And, and, and also you get more into your process and you wonder if the person who 
the process is about is going to see what you see and all that stuff. And that's true for anybody who sees the film. But he was there for the ride. I mean, he cried, he laughed, and he said after he saw the film, which is like, a hilarious reaction because you anybody watches that film and it makes them feel lazy. It makes them feel like they <laughs> right. want to get up the next morning right. and maybe try to do something that's right. a little less <laughs> less than sleeping in their bed. Right. But he said, "I wish I could live forever." He still got the juice. He still got the juice. I yeah. mean, that's he's a true one of a kind, and I think seeing him react to the film is emblematic of that because. Who the hell would say that <laughs> after seeing the mind-blowing accomplishments and life that he's lived? Like, who would say that? That's true. Al, anything you'd add? Uh, well, I was nervous, man, because there's just a lot of stuff in there that you think that he wouldn't like. But, there's a yeah. lot of stuff, yeah. you know, that that's, you, you're like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And he'd given us this license to be able to just freely create this movie, and he hadn't seen it, and we're just like, oh, my goodness. And then he just went totally, totally into it. Thankfully, he really liked the movie. Yeah, and thankfully, that's also been the predominant response here so far as you guys have rolled it out in New York and L.A., and congratulations, and thank you for doing this. Appreciate thank you. It. Thanks, Scott. And now for my interview with the man himself, Quincy Jones. All right, Mr. Jones, thank you so much for doing this, and congratulations on the documentary. Thank you. We always begin by just asking all of our guests to share, and obviously a lot of this is addressed in the film, but where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Chicago, Illinois, 1933, nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I hear people complaining about the 60s, 70s, 80s. They should try the 30s, 40s, and 50s. <laughs> yeah, right after in the America. Depression, yeah. And your folks? My father was a master carpenter. He worked with a gang. He was an architect for the most notorious gangsters in America, the Jones Boys. We're doing a movie on him now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my mother was a graduate from Boston University, very smart lady, but she had dementia precoction. We were seven years old. They took her away in a straitjacket, and that was not fun. No, we see in the in the documentary how much that affected you. And how do you think another thing affected you from your childhood, and that's poverty? I mean, it was not easy for a lot of years there, right? The 30s during the Depression. Yeah. And there's something in the water in Chicago that creates gangsters. I don't know what it is. I (laughs) think of Rahm Emanuel, Pat Daly, Pat Daly Sr. Right, right, right. Giacomo. When they don't play Capone. No. And so you were heading in that direction yourself, right, when music came along? 11 years, man. Because you want to be what you see. And I learned, all I saw dead bodies every day and Tommy guns and stogies and Piles of money, and it's amazing. And so really it was kind of a just a fateful thing between your mother singing, your neighbor playing the piano, and then you doing a naughty thing, but that led you to a piano, right? That really kind of saved the day. Yeah, that turned my life around. I'd have been dead or in prison mm-hmm. if I hadn't done that. Yeah. Thank God he stepped up. What do you think it was about music or musicians, or the life of people in the music business? What was it that appealed to you about it all at first? Well, you know, I didn't know how to answer that before, but when we were doing Roots, Alex Haley asked me where my music roots came from, and I didn't know really. And so he went and talked to a lady named Johnny Cerny, who was a Mormon, Salt Lake City, one of the smartest ladies. He got a book on my family for $1,000, and I went back and got 39 more. Wow. Got all of the, the information of what happened. Because, you know, the black families want to tell you what really happened. Because my first aunts were cold black, the 
because my grandmother was ex-slave, you know. And then my three aunts were high yellow, and Daddy had straight hair using vitalis. Brothers didn't use vitalis. <laughs> Use them. Conk. Yeah. <laughs> Processes. Anyway, it's an amazing journey. People these days, you know, if you talk about Seattle and music, they're thinking about grunge and they're thinking about alternative rock and all Kurt, that. Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain, right, yeah. and, and Pearl right. Jam. But the reality is, long before Kurt Cobain was a figment of his mother's imagination, your family moved to the Seattle area, right? After Bremerton. Right. So what was going on musically in Seattle when you got there? Everything. That's when I met Ray Charles. And you were met just Ray a... Charles at 17. I was 14. Yeah. He taught me how to read music in Braille. He had sight till he was six, you know, and I spent his whole life with him yeah. till he left us, you know. And Seattle is where you first discovered On jazz. fire. Yeah. We'd play the Seattle Tennis Club, which was all white. We'd wear white cardigans and <laughs> bow ties and play pop music to each his own and all that stuff. And then we'd go to the Washington Social Club, which is a black club, and we'd change our clothes, play for strip teasers and <laughs> rhythm and blues, you know, T-Bone Walker. How young were you when somebody first wanted to hire you to work for them as a musician, as a trumpeter, I think, right? Well, I was always working as a trumpeter with Bumps Blackwell. We worked with Billy Holiday at Bumps Blackwell's band when we were 14. Right. So this was Billy like Eckstein at 15. Early. I met Clint Eastwood during those days. His family moved from Oakland to go to work at Bowens, you know, and he used to come by the Trianon Ballroom every night because <laughs> jazz is always girls there. Right. You know, so <laughs> My right. nickname for him is Albino Red. <laughs> <laughs> but it was in Seattle that you first got kind of recruited by Lionel Hampton. Well, he wanted me to go with his band when I was 15. Right. Because somebody played in one of my arrangements. I wrote a, a suite from the Four Winds. Right. And he heard it, and he wanted me right away. And I got on the band bus. I didn't even ask my parents and stepmother. I just got on the bus. I didn't want anything to get come between it. And I sat on there by myself for five hours. Then all the band got on, and Hamp got on, and his wife, Gladys, who managed the band, said, his nickname was Gates. He said, Gates, what's that child doing back there? <laughs> Come here, honey. I said, oh, God. I was so mad, man. And she said, what's your name? I said, da 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 How old are you, 15? Get off the bus. Go get your education. <laughs> oh, man, I was so broken. I can't tell you. And sure enough, I didn't like the curriculum at the Seattle University where I had a scholarship. It's too proper. Mm -hmm. So I got a scholarship to the Schillinger House, which now is the Berkeley School mm -hmm. of Music. I hurried back there, went, stopped in Chicago to see my relatives and went back there. Yeah, so when you were now done with that at 18, you could now go off with... And Ham called me. He called six that. months later. I left that school so quick, man. <laughs> Ooh, quick. <laughs> well, drugs have really messed with a lot of people in the music business who it you've known with bebop man well that's that's what i want to yeah. get to because i think you've you've said that you know obviously it's affected a lot of people who you've crossed paths with over the years and when you were with the hampton band i think you i came across a past interview i think you were saying that malcolm x was the dealer for the band he was in front of the majestic hotel in detroit we used to call him detroit red <laughs> and then his Italian suits on. <laughs> That's what when Spike Lee did Malcolm X, I said, Man, Malcolm, you couldn't do it. Malcolm could walk around in a blue suit suit marching down the street. You know, he's a dope dealer, man. But there was <laughs> so that was one person who just to give an example of different people you obviously you've said, you know, Ray Charles who you'd known again 
for for years already. 30 years of heroin. Yeah. I mean, it got bad for for him with, I guess, heroin in particular. So my point is, how did you manage to avoid the pitfalls that affected so many other people around you? But I was on, I was, he kept me hooked for five months at 15. After we'd finished the Washington Social Club and a couple of other ones, we all go down to Jackson Street to the Elks Club. That's where all the bebop jam sessions were. Nobody got paid. We didn't give a damn. So the guys, when they finished playing, they'd go over in a corner. Ray wouldn't let me get in the corner, and they had it on their thumb, you know, right there. And a year later, I just snuck in the line and got me a little hit. <laughs> I read it was really only because a pretty dangerous thing happened to you that you got out of that. Yeah, I fell down five flights of steps. How does that Before happen? For a trumpet, just high. Yeah. But that's not good for a trumpet player. And I was over. And you know what? The mistakes are what helped you grow and learn. Yeah. That was a big one. And if I hadn't done that, I would have been in New York when I was hanging out with Charlie Parker. I would right. have been a junkie forever. Right. A bird was always high. Mm-hmm. Thank God we did it there and got it over with. I think outside of the music business, people aren't totally sure what being an arranger means it's something that right and I want to I want to ask you because it was something that I guess the first time you were really hired to do it was started with Oscar Pettiford that's the first time in New York you know and I got to meet me Lux Lewis and all those people so what does it mean to be an arranger and why do you think you are so good at it orchestration to me is like heaven Mm -hmm. it really is how do you take four trumpets, four trombones, five saxophones, two altos, two tenors, the baritone? Somebody got to, came to that conclusion. Benny Carter and Don Redmond explained to me how they came there because the saxophone was invented by Adolf Sax with an E from Belgium in 1860. And the only classical composer that ever used it, he, all of them, sopranos, reactors, all of them, he did them. And I think Ravel Bolero was the only one that ever used the saxophone. And he had no idea there was going to be Chewberry and Coleman Hawkins and Coltrane and Charlie Parker and Cannonball. He had no idea. And they, you know, brothers will do anything right. <laughs> so they, they took it to a whole other level. So it's basically, it's being able to envision in your mind, right, how... The collective. Yeah, all the pieces of the puzzle. Yes, you put them all together, and it's an amazing challenge. Because you can make it sound however you want to do it to make it yours, you know. So what was it that enabled you to do that so well? Was it your familiarity with different Probably instruments? Probably no or? mama. <laughs> What's that? Probably no mother, you know. And also the weather in Seattle was perfect too because you couldn't go out because it's raining all the time. <laughs> you know, so that's all I wanted to do. What's the greatest skill that most other people don't have that you have? Is it arranging or is it some other aspect? Well, it's orchestration and so forth, but a lot of people have that. But I went all the way. I went back to... Nadia Boulanger in Paris in 57. And she always teased me, and she said, you jazz guys are hard to deal with because you shack up with music first, (laughs) then you court it and marry it later. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. I went to her to learn how to write for symphony orchestra. And so nothing would scare me, you know. All the different genres of music, Ray said, respect each genre. It's just only good and bad music. And Duke Ellington, my first production was Duke, We Love You Madly. Century City. And when we finished his thing, he died a year later, 75. And he said, on a picture you gave me, may you be the one to start to decategorize American music. The categories are, are worthless, you know. Which was certainly a big thing for. Oh, yeah. And back I did on that. Yeah. I did that. And I got, I got uh, 
just a lot when I started to do Michael Jackson, because I always did all kinds of music. Laverne Baker, you know, whatever you bring, I, I could do it. Bebop, Sonny Stitt. <laughs> yeah. All of them. Mingus, you know. Well, that period when you worked with Nadia Bullinger was, you went to Europe first, I guess, in 56 with this mission that we we see it in the film State Department. I guess Adam Clayton Powell was. It was to sort of spread the Dizzy Gillespie American culture. Dizzy Gillespie yeah. was the and main. He, and I was I was in the process. I was starving in New York then, and George Evakian sent me a project to write, and I was so happy because I was starving to death. Mm-hmm. And it was a 17-year-old track runner from San Francisco, managed by Helen Noga. Dizzy came to me at 22 and said. I want you to be the musical director and arranger of this band. You picked all the guys and meet me with the band, arrangements on all of the national anthems in Aleppo, Damascus, everywhere, Syria, Karachi, everywhere. And the goal was to spread American culture in Europe? Exactly, because it just started then, you know. It was amazing. And we used to do these broadcasts with Willis Conover and Voice of America. And the Russians used to scramble it because, you know, jazz over there meant freedom then. Even the Hungarian Revolution, I met Gabor. He was playing with Lena then. But he says he was in the Army when he heard our broadcast, and it helped him get his spirits up to get through it. That feels good. (laughs) So you liked it enough to then basically relocate to Paris for the next several years, four or five years. I went for two weeks, but I was in Argentina with Dizzy's band. Lalo told me about, he said, there's a new music happening up there now. It's called The New Wave. That's what Bossa Nova means, you know. And we got there and it was just starting with Antonio Carlos Chopin, Astrid, and Joao Gilberto. They were sitting in the front row <laughs> with Sebi. This was a big part of that. That's his trademark of Flatted Fifth, you know. Right. Yeah. So how do you think you were shaped by that? opportunity to see the world for the first time really in that way and how did it change you man i was grinning like a fox eating sauerkraut <laughs> unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. I, I, you know because i took the, the record back to george evakin and i said i would very appreciate it very much but and i think he's a great singer but i don't think he's a jazz singer and they got gil evans and johnny carisi and those guys to do a jazz album to finish the one i was working on and it didn't work they released it, didn't work, and Mitch Miller took him upstairs and did Chances Are and Twelfth and Never with Johnny <laughs> Mathis. There you go. Who was on fire when we got back. <laughs> and he keeps saying to this day, he says, you left me for Dizzy? <laughs> I said, yes. But, I mean, it seems like one of the crazy things that was defined that period is while you're studying with Nadia in Paris, you're meeting, it sounds like, a lot of African-American People in exile, James Baldwin, Ex-pa- Richard, Ex-pa- right? Expatriates everywhere. Right. All of them. Dexter Garden, Kenny Clark was in my house band, so was Don Bias and Lucky Thompson. Stephen Grappelli, who was with Django Reinhardt. It was an amazing experience, man. But the reason they were there was because they didn't want to deal with what you had to deal with when you came back, which is even though you were now really distinguishing yourself, when you came back in the early 60s, first VP of color at a major record label, Mercury, making a hit record with Leslie Gore at that point. They uh, kept saying, you don't know anything about rock and roll. I said, man, whatever, bring it to me. And also in that period, early 60s, was the beginning with Sinatra, I think. So the question, though, is even with all of that going on where you've clearly establishing yourself as a top artist, 
unlike the folks in Europe, though, who the expats who you were meeting, you came back to America and are being told that there are places you can't go and things that you can't do because you're black. That's right. And and you know what? We would not have had jazz if it wasn't for the French, even during slavery at Congo Square. The Celtics were all trying to kill the drums and break up the culture and break up the families, you know. But the French, they cherish jazz. And when I went to France, I could really feel it, you know. They supported that music, man. They loved it. And did you feel that as a person of color, you were more accepted in society? Than well, in you... France, you don't think about personal colors at all. Right. That's... They don't either. Right. They just, you know, just do your thing. And if, if racism was in the hands of the jazz people, it would have been over 80 years ago. Can you play, sucker? That's all it is. Brown, <laughs> red, black, whatever you are. Can you play? Right. That's why they used to call Red Rodney Albino Red, because he went down <laughs> with a black band, and they had to say he was black, but he's albino. They made him sing one blues song. <laughs> it was crazy back then. <laughs> Another area that, in Hollywood at least, was not really open to people of color before you. Not really, at all. Well, no, what I want to film scoring is uh, because other... That's what I'm talking yeah, about. prior to you... open at all. I guess Duke Ellington had done Anatomy of a, a Murder, yeah. a few, but that was yeah. it. But now you come along. How did it happen that you ended up you ended up working with Sidney Lumet on The Pawn Broker? That was the first score for you, Lena right? Horn. Horn. I wrote a song for Basie called for Lena and Lenny, which is married to Lenny Hayden. And Sidney was flirting with Lena's daughter, <laughs> Kale. Right. And so I was at the house a lot, and I'd see him floating on the floor flirting with her. And Lena told him, this is the guy that drew The Pawn Broker, because I'd already done one Swedish film, Trevor Lady Porkett, you know. He took me in to see the film. He said, what do you think? I said, I don't think it needs music. He said, yes, it does, and you're going to do it. <laughs> and it was uh, that was an amazing experience. And I did five films with Sydney, And then another Sydney came in and gave me six, Sydney Poitier. Right, right, right. Because he was fighting, too, because they had banned him. You know, during the McCarthy period, it's too left-wing, you know. And Richard Brooks brought him back with Blackboard Jungle, you know. And in the Heat of the Night's score, which you did, was, I think, was that the first blues score of a movie in Hollywood? Had there been other blues infused? Yeah? Brother John. Yeah. But film scoring is like a totally different art form than what you had been doing before. I know, but I was in art before music. Yeah. And I have synesthesia. What that is? I see music before I hear it. It's in colors, you know, purple, grays, and stuff, before the sound comes. And that's crazy, but it works. So you're saying that when you are thinking about, when you're reading music or when you're writing music? I was thinking about it, yeah. It comes in colors. And I think about that in, when I write, you know, with colors and little cross voicings. And remember Frank once told me to, he was testing me on the best is yet to come. When I, I was 29 when I went with Frank. And he said, too, I like love the arrangement, man, but that first aid is a little dense. I said, no problem. And I took all the saxophones and changed them to alto flutes and took the trumpets all in harmonies with the stems out, five minutes, let's go. He was shocked, you know, because Nelson, those guys were in their 50s, you know. They were, I was following some heavy dudes, man. Billy May, woo! <laughs> Serious, Gordon Jenkins. When had you first learned to write music was that with nadia Thir no man i was 13. but yeah. writing music i know yeah, you can writing you, it was composing by ear, but... and orchestrating man are you kidding yeah so the whole way through and orchestrating in wow but even as a kid it sounded like from one thing i read you'd go to a movie and you could tell from the score 
what studio had done it? Yeah, because Alfred Newman ruled at 20th Century Fox. His brother, Lionel Rich, was a musical supervisor there. He ruled. His influence took over every composer that worked there. Victor Young at Paramount, every composer that followed Victor Young. Stanley Wilson at RKO. And I don't know how at 15 I can understand it, but I used to play hookers from school and, and spend $11 a movie down the Skid Row and just sit and watch him all day. And after a while, I could really had a good check on it. I saw what was going on. Because it, it's like another planet, man. You know, when there's synchronization, so there's a serious science to it. You know, every time it has to be right on that for synchronization. You've had a lot of close calls, and I think this is shown in very powerfully in the documentary. A lot of health scares of one sort or another. It's starting with when you were back in in Chicago being kind of menaced by you, you other know, people. And, and that's right. And, and what was funny, I didn't really get it until I saw the movie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> she put them all together, you know, sort of laying out on the floor, you know, passed out <laughs> and brains and legs and back. Were you supposed to be at Sharon Tate's house the night of the Manson yes. murders? Yes. What, what happened while I was doing this, the score to Bullet, I got pulled off of it because I had an appendectomy, and so did the, the assistant producer. And they gave it to Lalo Schiffer. And I, would, boy, I was really bummed because I, I had to cut it loose. The first McQueen movie. He asked me would I take Jay Sebring, who was my barber, to see a rough cut of the thing for Peter Yates, you know. And I asked him, and he said, yeah. So I went with him to the mm-hmm. screening. He had the same suit, great yet, loved, loved the jacket and everything. He said, I'd like you to meet me at tonight at Sharon's house. There's a, a thing up there tonight. I've got some stuff for your head for the follicles there, you know. So it's trying to grow some stuff back, you know. And I forgot about it. And the next morning at 9 o'clock, I get a call from London in Connor Square, like where my son was born. Victor Lowndes, Cosby was staying with Victor Lowndes. He said, did you hear about J.C. Ring? He said, he's dead. I said, no way, man. He was with me last night and stuff like that. And we stopped talking, and I called Sebring International. They said, who's this calling? I said, can I speak to Jay Sebring? Who's this calling? Da, 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 da. Jay Sebring's dead. Bam! And I turned TV on, and I knew that house backwards because I tried to buy it, you know. And Rudy Altabelli would only rent it to me. He wouldn't sell it, you know. Do you know the story behind that, how Manson got all freaked out? Terry Melcher, that's Doris Day's son, was there with Candy Bergen. And he was producing the Beach Boys. And... Manson came during that time and asked him, could he give him a record deal? And he just pushed him away. And so he said, go kill the pigs on the hill. But they weren't there anymore because it was Sharon Tate and Polanski, you know. Wow. But Polanski wasn't in town. We saw him in London the week before at Michael Caine's. It was scary. I bet. That's a- Everybody was looking at each other all weird. You know, and <laughs> Cause that, yeah. That's funny because he it said, kill the pigs on the hill. He tried to make it look like black guys did at the Panthers. So he'd get a little racial conflict mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. You know, this country is... Whew. Well, so I guess the biggest health scare of your life probably are at that point, and again, it's chronicled in the doc, but these aneurysms that you had in 74 within a few months of each other, it seems like when you came back from that, which was not at all assured that you would. I mean, it was odds were actually against that. The work seems to have had a different sort of social consciousness after that. Just to mention a few things, you scored Roots in 77, and you won an Emmy for that. 78, you scored The Wiz, even though I know you weren't that enthusiastic about 
being a part of it, it sounds well, he like. He told me, you owe me. And I said, you're right. Yeah. And I showed up. Who said that? Sidney Lumet. Sidney said, right. Yeah, because I love Sidney, man. He wasn't a great director, man. So there's there's another. Then 85 was both We Are the World, of course, and The Color Purple. Do you think that there was a, a change in your thinking to really be more focused on telling stories and making music that had a, a social purpose? No, I was always in that. Always, all my life. Mm-hmm. When you lose your mother, man, that's what you're doing is looking for signs of making it better. Mm-hmm. I guess the good thing about doing the Wiz was that was the first crossing of paths with Michael Jackson, right? Smelly. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just to clarify, because people might hear that and no, think he was a smelly guy. My mother thought I said he smelled bad. <laughs> no, we we're trying to get him to say funk, and he wouldn't say that. Smelly jelly. Right, right, right. <laughs> In a lot of ways, you were more of a father to him, certainly for a period of his life, than his own father who just Absolutely. died. Absolutely. Why do you think you two hit it off? Well, three things can do that, and that's love, respect, and trust. If you don't have that, nothing's going to happen. And we had both at it, you know, because no one person makes a record. It takes the whole thing. And he had never done a solo record. Oh, and he was said, uh, I'm going to do my... This new album on Epic Records, we signed a new deal out outside of Motown. Would you help me find a producer? I said, Michael, I don't even want to talk about that. You only got, you don't have a song in the movie yet. Only he's on down the road with Diana. And so we finally talked Charlie Smalls into writing You Can't Win with the Crows, you know. And then I started to watch him. And he, after he got all the prosthetics and everything on, he, uh, with the straw in his chest and everything, he had the ability to, know everybody's dialogue, everybody's songs, everybody's dance steps, everything. He didn't miss anything. He was like 19 years old, man. And so his work ethic is what made you want to yeah, believe in him? and or? his curiosity. Yeah. And so here's what really got me, though. They were at the Brooklyn Hotel one, one morning with Sidney Lumet rehearsing with the principals, you know. And Michael said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Confucius, da 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 da, Kierkegaard, da 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 da, Socrates. I said who? <laughs> and Diana didn't say anything. That was rare. <laughs> and uh, Sydney didn't say anything. So I went to him. And I said, Michael, it's Socrates. It's not Socrates. You know, come on, man. <laughs> really? I said, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'd like to take. You look like a deer in a headlight. You know. I said, I'd like to take a shot at it. Let's try it. With a the album. album. So, yeah. and that was. Yeah, and that's probably started. Off the wall. Yeah. They went back to the record company and said, uh uh-uh, uh, Quincy's too jazzy. And so did Barry Gordy. Right. No, you wouldn't let me work with Marvin or Stevie. You know, and Barry's my friend, too, you know. This is right across the hill from me, but he said, no, he's too jazzy. And his father came to me and said, you know, he can't get any bigger, you know. I said, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I found out a long time ago that the best position to be in in this city is to be underestimated because they underestimate you they get out of your way and they all used to say who the hell does Quincy think he is he's going to try to get a five and a half million dollar director to direct his first movie Stephen did it for me for eighty four thousand dollars <laughs> when do you think you first learned that lesson about it's good to be underestimated during that time but even oh, just they, in the movies and, and making movies and making TV and all that stuff, you know, they get out of your way if they don't think you can do it. And so they say, oh, man, forget it. <laughs> well, so with Michael, obviously, it did get a lot bigger and most of all with Thriller. And so I just wonder, as you look back on that one, the biggest of all albums, why was it 
so good. What was it that you brought to the table and no, he brought to the But if we had that with all three albums, man. No, with for my sure. Man but... Off the wall with no slouch, you know. <laughs> but we went through 800 songs to do Thriller, to get nine. And then at the end of that, the nine, I sit quietly, drop all the egos and everything else and say, what relatively are the weakest four of those nine? And you have to really be real with yourself for that. And we took out Carousel by Mike Cimbello, who had just had flash dance and all that, which was close. But I was looking for a really harmonic collage in the song, you know. It was just the opposite of a three-card chant like Billy Jean, just three cards in that, you know. And so Toto sent over some demos to me. Rod and I left the tape on. We forgot to take it off. And after a while, we heard do-do-do-do-do. Didn't know words. And so we called Mike Sambello the next day. He wrote the lyrics to it, Human Nature. Mm -hmm. And so we added Lady in My Life. We wrote PYT, James Ingham, and Beat It and Human Nature. Man, that set that album on fire because it's it's architecture when you're sequencing a, a record, you know, and put that right behind Billy Jean, you know, with the street chords and, and get it so it's like a it's just structure, you know. It's so much fun. You well, know? you've also, you get into details right down to the cover of an album being important, right? Yeah, well, yeah. and uh, Freddie DeMann and Ron Wise are right with me. He said, no, no, we got to, he had on a little baby line and an umbrella. I said, no. <laughs> Did you see we put him in bad, the cover of bad? We had metal and leather jackets and all that macho stuff. You know, it's necessary, man. Because it, it, if, the cover's messed up, if the songs are wrong, the wrong keys, the wrong tempo, the wrong studio, the wrong engineer, background singers, it's all the producer's fault. If it's a smash, the artist wants to say, I did it all. <laughs> it's, it's human nature. I understand right. that. Right. People maybe thought because he was so popular and sold, you know, you guys with these albums sold so many records that... You know, it's like years later when Obama was like, the people said, oh, we're in a post-racial America. That idea was quickly out the window. But in the case of Thriller, just to contextualize that for that period, MTV didn't even want to play the video, right? Pittman was my partner yeah. with my joint venture with Time Warner, Steve Ross. He called me in 1980, said Q, because he was a disc jockey. They called him the Mississippi Hippie. And he said, I've got a great idea. I got seven VJs, what are VJs, da 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 And all of my content is free because there's promotion, video promotion, you know, and everything else. And I think it's going to work, you know. So he went, he said, I'm going to see the board next week. He was asking for $30 million to, to, to try it. And they said, no way, you know, because that was opera singers, and I won't call any names. <laughs> but they said, no way. And so as he left in front of the board there, Steve Ross said, here's 50 million, I believe in it, let's do it. And at that time, they don't play any black, no black music. Yeah, that's no, what I mean, it was. No black. And, and poor Rick James was all messed up with Super Freak, yeah. They wouldn't do it. So we were down at Acapulco at the Warner Brothers Villa, and Steve asked me, he said, I said, what is all this stuff about no black music? What is that? Because Pitton was not even close to being a racist, not even close. Mm -hmm. It was just a philosophy that went astray. Steve said, what are you releasing next? I said, we're going to double clutch it on Beat It and Billie Jean. He said, Bobby, that goes on next week. It was not Walter Yetnikoff. Trust me, it was Steve Ross. Because we did the video on Billie Jean, 
and was on MTV. But it really happened on the 25th Motown. That's when it kept really caught on, and the moonwalk and all that stuff, you know. But by 84, when we released Thriller with Landis, man, that thing took off like nothing I've ever seen in my life. I was at the shoot there. They were trying to talk me out of taking my royalty on that, Landis, you know. <laughs> and I did. Yeah. And they gave me some footage, which they took back in six months. <laughs> right. But so there was never any other music video that, that you're aware of that was even close to that, right? Everybody in the world, man. I, I saw one last year with 13.3 thousand people in Mexico City doing every step together in the town square, you know. It's crazy, man. All over the world, you know. You referenced a minute ago about working with Spielberg on Color Purple. What was the appeal of producing films? Because I wanted everybody to see it done with the best, because I loved Alice Walker's book. But it was epistolary, and we had to transform it into a narrative, you know, or a script. And man, Spielberg, it took me 11 months to get him, but he tore it up. He was one of the greatest friends in the world. He used to come to the studio when I was doing Thriller. He was doing E.T. at Laird Studio. I'd go see him. It was smoke in there all the time. You know, he loves that smoke. <laughs> and the first E.T. was a $700,000 model, just controlled by eight people. But the first one looked too much like a brother, so they had to go back with $700,000 and go back and do another one. That's why he had blue eyes. Because Drew Barrymore was living at our house then. Color Purple brings up another thing, which is your track record of spotting talent. You found Oprah. You found, essentially, Will Smith and, and a lot but, of other that's people. My, that, I can't drive, but that's the other thing I can do. I can see the talent in people before they even know they have it. Well, how do you explain that? I don't know. I don't try. I don't even try to explain it. it <laughs> as long as it keeps working, I mean, back to Billy Preston, Brothers right. Johnson, all you know, Leslie, you know, sixteen years old. The rock and roll singers couldn't hear, you know, do 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 do. You know, it's a lot of heavy tonality and ears necessary for that. And she tore it up. But do you think it's because you had such a broad? background yourself in different types of music that you're able to appreciate i mean that's right and you don't look down on any music just right. bad music right yeah and so was that the goal of your album that won the grammy for album of the year where you were essentially taking all of the particularly i guess you would say traditionally black music genres jazz soul yeah, funk all rap my people who were my people I'd work with. I worked with all of them. Dizzy, Sarah, we did the first record on Misty in 1958 in Paris with Strings, you know. No, they were all close friends. And close friends. And guess what? After that, we had Ella, Sarah, Dizzy, and Miles. Dizzy, Ella, and Sarah. Sarah went straight from the studio and with melanoma and died. Ella died. She had amputated, you know, and I tore, broke my heart because they were my definite idols, you know. And these were the, and Dizzy, the last And Dizzy, so. and then a year later, I finally talked Miles into playing some Elevens in Montreux, and three months after that, he died. You know, it was heavy. So that leads into the last few years where I want to ask you about having a documentary made about you. Was the idea of that, if it hadn't been brought to you by your daughter, would you have been as open to the idea, or is no, there something? No, no. No, because when you do something like that, you want to feel safe. And her and the team are the most beautiful people. You know, they, they, they're continuously with us, you know, after they did Clark Terry, because Hicks was he's a drummer. Well, that's... Oh, let's, Aussie. Let's set it up, a though, drummer, for, man. for our listeners. So you 
one of your teachers back in Seattle, early teachers, was Clark Terry. Yes. And 12 years old. And he was still teaching up until a few years ago. And he taught Miles, too. Taught Miles, too, and taught Al Hicks. You meet Al because you go to meet with Clark while the documentary about Clark is being made. Yeah, but we went. I went over there to record Snoop Dogg doing hip-hop and him doing mumbles together. Because right. that's been a nice comment. Because a lot of, lot of hip-hop comes from jazz, you know, slang, music, everything. So you then got on board as a executive producer of Keep On, Keep It On. Talk about that film and the introduction, you know, you, you and... Al, I mean, the, that was the beginning of that, and then obviously Al and Rashida did Quincy, but first you had to believe in Al, too. Well, listen, man, when I hear a drummer come out with a, well, a piece like Keep On Keeping On, it blows your mind, man, because, you know, directing is hard. You know, there's a lot of technology going on. For a first film, too, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's Al got to know you, and I, I guess Rashida as well, through the keep on experience. Now they get together and say, we want to do this about you. There had been a couple of attempts to do documentaries about your life, but they hadn't been able to capture in the way that this one. Yeah, because there's just so, so much. But they dug in. They dug in deep. So they were in your house for years looking through your stuff. (laughs) I'm going to go to the bathroom, man. They shoot me. (laughs) What's that like? Do you do you like kind of being yeah, on camera? I don't like it, but in the hands of people I love and trust, it's another game. It's a whole other trip. What did you make of the idea that there were, nobody's going to sit down and do what, what I'm sort of doing now and just throw a bunch of questions at you? Instead, it's going to be all this footage from the past and then just kind of following you in the present. I guess it wasn't really until you saw it when it was done that you understood this was the structure they were Taking, exactly. Right? I just trust them. Right. I really do. I mean, it's just my heart, you know. Can you take us into your mind the first time they said, we're ready, we want to show it to you, here's what we've been pouring ourselves into no, for the I last... freaked. <laughs> so where <laughs> I mean, was it? Was that your house? Because they shot, what, 2,000 hours, 800 hours? Yeah. To get two hours, man. And, you, you know, you can't get all that stuff in there. What surprised you the most? You were saying that you were reminded of how many close calls you've had, but also, what else? I mean... I don't even know how to start, man. Because it hit everything, you know. How would you say it made you feel emotionally? Well, I was flabbergasted at first, you know. And so every time I see it, it's like looking at keep on keeping on. That's what I think 15 times. It hits you because just like keep on keeping on, there's not a drop of BS in it, not one drop. They don't play that. But they're real people. Mm-hmm. And they made a decision that I think is pretty interesting to show your work with the National Museum of African American History and Culture, that even after your health scares, that you continued to pour yourself into producing that with Don Misher and the whole giant thing there. The thing that I think people have been coming away from the film amazed by, among other things, is just that you still have the drive to keep doing this. What is it? I'm just starting, baby. Why is that? Because I love to create, man. Retired. You take the RE off of that, it's tired. (laughs) I'm not tired yet. (laughs) Right. Does it energize you now over these? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But I mean, specifically... Get back to work, man. You were in Toronto. I was in Toronto as well for the film festival a few weeks ago, whatever, a week ago. And there's a big 
premiere at the Princess of Wales Theater. You had a history in Toronto yourself going back a long time. We had a Massey Hall concert in 52. So, I mean, it's that was sort of coming home in a way for you, too. Yeah, we, we used to party up there, man. <laughs> Montreal, Quebec, Nova Scotia, come on. Vancouver, two hours from Seattle, man. But now this is going to be the first time on back on the, the 9th, I think it was, of this month, that people were going to see this film about you. Can you describe what it was like for you on that night to come out after the premiere and, and what sort of response the film and, and you received there? Well, I just kind of opened up my soul without any opinions or anything else to just absorb it, inhale it, you know, because really because of the people involved, man. It's people closer to my soul, you know. But it's got to be pretty nice to see that both the film and you are being so appreciated, not only in Toronto, but now you've been in New York with it, L.A. for a premiere here as well. I'm sure it's going to go nuts when it goes on Netflix, too. People don't take time that often to appreciate people when they're around. We do tributes of people usually when they're no longer able to feel it. It's got to be kind of nice to be able to feel it. Yeah, it is. Great. Lucky. (laughs) With the last few minutes here, what I wonder if we can do is just talk about the world in which this documentary is coming into. I mean, music today as opposed to when you were starting out, when you were doing a lot of the things that are chronicled in the documentary. What do you make of music today? It's represented generation, as, as all of them do. You know, but I've, I've got to tell you, there's a whole crop of young people, including Kendrick Lamar mm-hmm. and Chance and da-da-da-da-da that or something else. Because it really boils down to the same thing that Nadia Boulanger used to tell me all the time. Your music can never be more or less than you are as a human being. So you start to work on the human being. Do you think it's a good thing that, you know, now there are reality TVs everywhere. You've got things like The Voice and American Idol where they, somebody's a music star overnight because of that, but they haven't been through the sort of training and learning their craft that you went through. Do you think well, music yeah, suffers yeah, because of that? There's a lot of them that, get, that are not on that page at all. Yeah. Have you heard Joey Alexander? He's a little 15-year-old kid that high from Indonesia. Mm-hmm. We played Monterey with him two years ago. Mm-hmm. He is frightening. He plays like Herbie Hancock, man, 50-year-old. And that's happening with Andreas. We, we have 15 kids we manage and supervise on the shoulder, you know. You know who the Dirty Loops are? That's a group from Sweden. They are incredible. And Alfredo Rodriguez, Cuban piano player, his father was the biggest singer in Cuba. He practices 14 hours a day, man. That's what it takes to get that left brain ready to supply everything you need. Because you don't have to practice science and emotion. But the science, you have to, have to get, get your stuff together and know what you're doing. One thing that I always have wondered and I wanted to ask you is, because of the fact that you've got so, such a long track record of social consciousness and doing things that are particularly about race, how do you feel when you see the N-word throughout music today, as much as it is? Yeah, but they're saying more of it than the people outside are saying it. <laughs> the rappers are saying it all the time. I mean, I, I, I go to Sweden and rush in these places, and I have a little Swedish kid, and I'm they don't even know what they're saying, man. They're doing it because the rappers did it, America did it. I don't think the word diminishes it at all, you know, because the people that mean 
G-G-E-R still mean that instead of G-G-A. You know, the colloquialist is G-G-A, but the G-G-E-R is, those people still feel it. Now, we've been feeling that all our lives, you know, on the road to Lionel Hampton. When you go to the South, you know where you stand because it's up front. White colored drinking fountains and hotel rooms and bus stations and stuff like that. It's a killer, man. It's a killer. And I was from Seattle, you know, which is just the opposite. Garfield High School, that's Jimi Hendrix, Bruce Lee, we all in the same high school. We lived across the street from it. And it was the most diverse one. And the schools in Boston and Seattle were the most diverse schools in America at that time. How about the, the overall society with all the work that you have been doing and others, you know, something like two years ago, three years ago, we had the museum that we see you working on in the film and how moving it was to you. Now, two, three years later, we have a president who refers to predominantly black countries as shithole countries. I don't know. Does that bother you? Sure, it bothers me, man. Sure, it bothers me. Everything he does bothers me. Everything. And he's antagonizing everybody. I mean, the Canadians are our brothers, man. They always have been. I know Trudeau Sr. and Jr., you know. They, you know, it's wrong. The last question is just, why does music matter. I know you clearly think it does. Why does it matter? Yeah. Because the last thing to leave this planet will be music and water. You cannot live without it, brother. How long can you go? Melody is God's voice. Now, I'm sure of that. You know, and it's clothed by lyrics, but it's God's voice. Melody is the power, because there's only 12 notes. We only do it diatonically, so it's something like eight notes, really. And they've been using that for 710 years. Brahms, Bach, Beethoven, Basie, Bo Diddley, Bird, everybody. Same 12 notes. All right. Well, I really appreciate this. Thanks for doing it. You too, man. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.